0: Hello, good morning, afternoon, or evening. I am Steve from Integrated Health Sciences, and I would like to welcome to the webcast today, Doc, Dr. John Lawrence. Thank you so much for coming on, Doc. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing very well, Steve, and thank you for having me on. It's really a, a pleasure to be able to join you.
0: It is a pleasure and an honor to have you in the house. I enjoy our conversations, no matter where they are, no matter when they are. And it's really nice to get to have this conversation between you and I in front of people so that hopefully we can help them out. So I'm gonna start with my story when it comes to Doc. And it starts like a lot of gym relationships start, the casual smile and the wave that usually goes on for six to eight months maybe before you finally get the courage to talk to the other person. Um, I would see Doc working out kind of like a beast for a long time and just always would be like, oh, that guy looks like he's got his together. And then I read through your shirt, which was a Doctors Without Borders shirt. And I had just come back from, I think, maybe my second or third medical mission in Ecuador. And it was something I just wanted to talk to you about. I asked you, Hey, any affiliation with them, you were kind enough to humbly share that you were the former president, or maybe at that time you were even the president, but in a super cool way. And then we connected on that and then just always kind of enjoyed each other's company, developed into a little bit of a relationship as far as that was concerned. And it was always nice to just kind of have you to pick your brain about medical mission stuff or medical stuff or whatever it was. And and that's kind of how you came into my life up until the day we're kind of going to talk about, but tell us your story, Doc, and spare no detail.
1: Yeah, well, thanks, um, Steve, for the, the bit of the introduction. And um, yeah, just uh, I think for, um, you know, a bit of an overview in that regard, I um, am, uh, well, kind of going way back native of the Midwest. Um, didn't anticipate that medicine was something that I was going to pursue as a career and wound up uh, uh, getting steered that direction by a little bit of serendipity, to be honest with you. Um, So it wasn't one of those things. That was what I thought I wanted to do my whole life. Then um, was uh, uh, in medical school, fortunate enough to get support from the U.S. government and the U.S. Public Health Service in particular. So Um, wound up to having a payback period that I was obliged to do, and so was in primary care, family practice, or general practice for five years and worked out on the Navajo Indian Reservation. Um, Then realized that surgery was actually what I wanted to do professionally, so went back to train in general surgery and then specifically pediatric surgery. Um, Backing up again just a little bit, when I was in medical school, I got interest and then, um, you know, progressive exposure to international health or global health, and kind of that became kind of a sideline or a track that I wanted to be involved in. Anyway, finished up my training in in, um, surgery, was working as an academic pediatric surgeon, and that was a time that I could then start doing little Um, you know, shorter overseas um, surgical trips and uh, got kind of attached to that. And much as you've done work similar to that yourself, so understand that. Um, But in the back of my mind, had always had this desire to make it a more prominent part of my uh, work and um, was finally actually well into my 50s able to um, start working with the group Doctors Without Borders, or Miss Sans Frontier, or MSF as it's known. And so um, did um, um, several assignments with them, working internationally over about a decade, got elected onto their board of directors, and then, as you alluded to, served as the president of the board of directors for three years. And um, I've just actually finished my last uh, year on the board uh, now about uh, six weeks ago, actually. So have um, kind of finished that all up. I term limited out at that point. So I've had this mix of um, interest in you know, academic medicine, um, in th- this mixture of surgery and pediatrics. And so teaching has been part of what I've been doing for much of my career, mixed in with this, this global health Um, side interest that started becoming more consuming and still, um, you know, still today is is something very passionate about.
0: That's awesome. Doc, can you give us two things? One is just tell us one story, kind of like that one moment that was that like, oh, this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing right now, or that moment you're most proud of, or maybe even that moment that moved you the most perhaps in a a negative way where it was really um, emotional for you. Can can you give us one moment and then take just a moment and just put on your global health hat and just speak a few words of what's going on currently because we are in the middle of a pandemic. It would be weird not to talk about it just a little bit. So share with us both of those if you don't mind.
1: Yeah, sure. So to talk about, um, you know, maybe what I would say has been the most Um, satisfying and maybe I could say gratifying part of my medical career. Um, Really, you know, in the last, I guess it'd be about three years ago, got involved in a um, pediatric surgical project in Monrovia, Liberia. So in West Africa and um, quite unique in that it was, um, uh, you know, a bit more specialized than most of what uh, Doctors Without Borders had been doing prior to that. Um, But also, and I think a very interesting and quite pertinent way, very much driven from a community-based or a ground-based interest and desire, meaning that people working in that project at an existing pediatric hospital had said, you know, we feel like we're doing pretty well with general pediatrics, but we're not doing as well when we have to refer patients with surgical conditions. And it was both surgical expertise and um, anesthesia, safe anesthesia care that were Um, concerns there. So this is an ongoing project and one that I'm actually hoping I'll be able to get back to here and, uh, you know, depending on travel restrictions and all of that, uh, uh, but hopefully get back to in the next, you know, four to eight months to um, kind of continue those efforts. But a very, um, you know, I think I would say uh, rewarding in that um, this has been a Um, a a project that's designed to empower the people of Liberia, so we're trying to train anesthetists and surgical personnel um, in the, in in kind of advance the, um, the level of expertise they have in more specific uh, areas within pediatric surgery and pediatric anesthesia, with the idea being that we'll actually be able to turn this over to Liberians, and that's kind of a five-year timeline, but if you said, you know, what's the, yeah, what, you know what's been most gratifying or satisfying that I've done. That would would be it for sure. Not that kind of the day to day care of taking care of children or patients otherwise isn't, but that kind of stands out. And then flipping that into the um, the well, what are the impacts? And I think I would you know be talking now internationally with with um, you know COVID nineteen and how is that affecting things? And so. You know, the answer is it obviously depends to some degree on where you are and what, um, where you are in the world in particular and, you know, what's available in-country for resources. But in no particular order, obviously, restrictions on travel and supplies and equipment has really constrained um, the, the ability to respond appropriately in a lot of parts of the world. So we obviously have had the supply chain issues here in the U.S., that have been problematic at times in the past and to some degree from what i'm reading still continue to be problematic and but we also have a capability here of gearing up you know manufacturing industries and so forth that can reroute what they're doing in country whereas in a lot of places that's more of a challenge um you know talking about you know many of the places in um uh, in, in lower resourced areas, the, you know, frankly, the prospect of salvaging patients who get critically ill is, is really very difficult. So intensive care and ventilators, not something that they have access to. Um, So there the emphasis has to be on, on more on the ground preventative measures. And it's exactly as, you know, hand washing, um, you know, wearing masks, uh you know so the those are are very important and you know in that regard um the you know as, as tragic as it may sound but some of the epidemics that have gone through you know not only in asia but also in africa so ebola coming to mind have been very good public health training for the countries there and i was more than not that it was affected by ebola but more than a little bit um uh, intrigued to read when the European Union opened up the list of countries that that they would accept visitors from. Currently, Rwanda was on that list, and the United States wasn't. So it 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 speaks to you know kind of wealth and might isn't the sole determinant, obviously, of how well can one can respond. So some of the areas of social or community cohesiveness that have been viewed as a problem here in the U.S. are actually better implemented or executed in, um, you know, other parts of the world that don't have the degree of technology or, you know, access to medications, that kind of thing is readily. So that's clearly, you know, a very big part of it. And, you know, I think the last comment I would just make in this that regard is that what this um, pandemic, I think, has shown is the importance uh, of health equity or how health inequity is magnified at Mm -hmm. times like this. So that's been very true here in the United States, um, you know, where it's uh, populations with lack of access to health care with multiple underlying diagnosis, which tends to unfortunately, um, you know, correspond with, um, you know, various determinants of of, uh, social stature how important those are, how important those determinants are for affecting who's going to get disease and then what their outcomes may be. And we see that same thing elsewhere. So when we talk about, well, you know, when this vaccine's available, how is that going to get distributed? And again, it's, there's a little bit of the haves have and the have nots it, it, it kind of that, that um, imbalance can be accentuated unless there's really a proactive effort to, um, to even that playing field as much as we can.
0: Yeah. That, that light being shined while our nation's looking at itself in the mirror isn't always as pretty as you want it to be. So yeah, I, I, I understand what you're saying. So take us through the night. So it was January 29th. I just Happen to remember that off the top of my head. Yeah. Uh, January 29th was a night where I'll just tell from my to start off. Like I was just doing some Instagram uh, work and you were doing something different. Tell us how that night went for you.
1: Yeah. So, um, so that night um, uh, and, and, you know, for, you know, people looking in who may be elsewhere, uh, you know, I was living in New York city at the time. And so working out the, um, you know, the, the, the gym facility that uh, is your kind of home away from home. Uh, and, um, uh, did what I would call kind of my standard routine at the time. So had gone out along the Hudson river and probably done about a four or five mile run. And it was kind of a chilly night, but, um, in the way that, um, again, anybody who are regular fitness, um, uh, you know, I don't know, fanatic may be an exaggeration, but, uh, but, uh, who maintain fitness in their lives, realize some days you feel like it's just a struggle from the, you know, the get go and you try to work through it. And other days you're just feeling great. And this is one of those days I was feeling, wow, it's, you know, it just feels good. All the prior, you know, <laughs> toil and sweat is paying off. And, uh, so had this run and then came back into the, um, into the, the gym and, um, uh, was doing again, what I would call was my then sort of follow-up routine. So really a mix and without realizing that, again, there's a lot of people with far more expertise on what's a good regimen or not a good regimen in that regard than I might have. But what I would say was my routine. So a mix of, of some weights, um, some, you know, high intensity jumping rope and, um, uh, and then kind of a more, um, some stretches also thrown in there so really a, a mixed bag of of um, of activities following that and had probably been at it for about an hour and a half so you know in the way that uh, it's not all about duration but um you know a fairly uh, longer workout compared to some that i may have had um, for sure in the past and was, you know, basically at the very tail end of it. So was just doing some sit-ups um, and uh, uh, all of a sudden had this just, I I think the best way I would describe it at the onset was kind of an odd sensation being just a little bit lightheaded mm-hmm. and um, really not anything more. And I, at the outset, I didn't really think much of it, to be honest with you. It's something that I would say, I would experience, you know, not to the magnitude that it accelerated to, but it experienced in the past and would kind of write off to I pushed a little too hard here. You know, frankly, the aging process, you realize you have to kind of slow down a little bit as time and the years go by. But nothing that really struck me as extraordinary. But at the outset, it was just, oh, I just need to back off a little bit. And. Um, but it 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 got to a point where I just felt this, you uh, know, it's very nondescript, but kind of odd feeling, and then almost had this, uh, and it's a, a hard to articulate, but I would say a little bit of vague feeling of, of kind of this hollowness or almost cold feeling in my chest, um, but certainly not classic pain. <clears throat> so I just stopped what I was doing and thought, well, whatever this is, maybe it's a little bit of my heartburn, maybe it's... Uh, you know, as I say, just going too far too fast, um, and thought if I just rest, whatever this is is going to pass because I, you know, it it, uh, um, it didn't concern me at the outset, and um, I kind of uh, sat and waited for about thirty seconds, and it just kept feeling a little bit strange, and so I got up from where I was and walked the kind of ten yards. Or you know, if that is probably an accurate distance, uh, but uh, um, to to where your area, where, where you know the the, um, the 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 physical therapists kind of have their um, you know their clientele um, and uh, services delivered in this same gym, and um, walked in there, having seen you there previously in the workout, and knew well. If whatever this is hasn't passed, at least I know somebody who I can kind of bounce off of, uh, you know, what should I do? What do you think is going on? So I um, uh, walked back into that area and and again thinking, well, if I feel good, I'll just, you know, kind of walk back out again and continue to finish up the workout and call it a night and um, got back there and still wasn't feeling well. Um, in just that kind of same vague way, but more lightheaded, something's not right than any avert, I'm really in pain, at least at that point in time. And um, so I, I got to where you were, and I just sat down, and that kind of had this moment, you know, this really is something more significant. Mm-hmm. Um, I need to You know, to to kind of uh, call a friend, so they say, or recruit some assistance. And so my recollection is you were talking on the phone, and I thought, oh, I hate to bother him, you know, (laughs) interrupt him. It may be one of his clients, it may be work related. And, um, but just to kind of recall, um, you know, saying to you, Steve, you know, I'm not sure what it is, but something's not right. I think you need to call some help for me. And yeah, I'll let you take over from there. But I, you know, from that point, for me, a lot of my memory was kind of patchy to be honest with you. And we can circle back through that at a yeah, later moment.
0: So I was on the phone with former president Obama. And I was <laughs> just like, All right, Barry, sorry. Like I got to run. I know you want to tell me about what you have for lunch, but like this seems really important. So I hung up the phone and came over to you and you were just like, it was kind of like a what's up doc. Cause I know you would never like, there was not a doubt in my mind, the moment that you interjected. And I don't say that in a negative way, but like something was up like that, that, that wouldn't have naturally happened. So kind of like the antenna already goes up, unfortunately. And then when I looked over towards you, you kind of were just like, I'm just having trouble right now. And that was, you said that you were lightheaded and that you were having a, a little bit of trouble breathing, but really it seemed it was more just kind of disorientation and more like what you were saying is like a hard to describe lightheadedness and a hard to describe sensation through the chest. And the, the first thing was like, hey, should we check your pulse? Like it just seemed like the normal, natural thing to do. And I've checked a, a ton of people's pulses in similar situations. In a boxing gym, sometimes people just pass out. They've never done a class before they come in and, and it just happens. And they always have, because they've been working out, thudding pulses. And yours was the complete opposite. It was hard to find. But when I found it, I knew I was on it. And I knew that it wasn't pumping. I I would say from someone who's never been in that scenario, I would say you're probably hitting at about 20 to 25% of how much I felt like I should be able to feel of that pulse hitting out at me. And that was I think quickly if we hadn't already that was very quickly then the like call 911 it was call 911 and it was unfortunately like that's when you started to articulate the the chest which thanks for kind of articulating that I don't know if we would have gotten there as quickly as we yeah. did but it is nice when you have someone who's a doctor to kind of guide you in these uncomfortable situations. But we had an AED that was at the gym. Yay, Gotham. Went and got it. It was helpful because Chris was there who was former military. Claire was there who was just being super helpful. And Stan, I don't know, he's Russian. And I don't know if that just makes him better in these situations. But he kicked ass as well. So the real main thing was get help as quickly as possible stay on the line with 911. And then it was monitor your pulse. The only thing that we tried to do was maybe play around with some positional stuff with like getting your legs up, see if any more blood to your head helped. It didn't seem to help. Maybe it hurt. I don't know. I'll let you answer that if you think it's valuable. But then the only thing that we did was we put the AED on you, which for anyone who's in that scenario, don't be afraid of the AED. Just go get it. If you've never done it, it's so self-explanatory. It tells you exactly what to do. The pads are well labeled. The voice cues are well defined. There's no real room for error. Any, I, I really would say probably a nine-year-old could probably handle doing an AED. Mm-hmm. Um, and we strapped you to the AED. And this was where it's kind of weird. And I do want you to answer this before we kind of get into this. But It told us to start doing CPR. So it did not shock you, but Mm -hmm. it told us to start doing CPR. Should we have done CPR? Like you were talking to me.
1: So, yeah. And I would say, you know, generally speaking, no, if somebody is able to communicate, that means that they've got a pulse and, you know, and again, that they're able to, to breathe. So, um, uh, so yeah, I would say that, that, um, without trying to countermand the AED, because it's much as you were saying, it's really designed to, to make things as simple as possible. And so in that regard, it, it generally should be, um, you know, to follow the instructions. So I, I'm not sure I could explain why, you know, why it would have said that. Um, and just maybe to reiterate one other thing to, uh, you know that you said about you know don't be afraid to use it and I think the real key especially for people in their workplace is to know where it is you know it's kind of like the fire extinguisher in your home you say yeah great if there's ever a fire I'll get the fire extinguisher out and you know but if you don't know where it is y- you you won't be able to do that or if you have to look in five different places so it's a seems sounds like a basic thing but for again people in a a, a gym, or if you worked in a mall or in an airport, kind of, you know, whatever it may be, know where the device or device is or kept, because the sooner you can get it out of the cabinet, the box of wherever it's stored and and hooked up, um, you know, the the better it's going to be.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. It's it isn't the don't be a, like not being afraid is really important in using it, but yeah, probably the number one mistake that happens the most isn't either of those two. It's just not knowing where it is, or I hate to say it, not having one. Um so yeah. encourage your office managers and anyone else, get an AED. They're not that expensive. Get a refurbished one. Hey, you were fine. That one was refurbished. It worked. So yeah. Whatever. Um, And something that we will do is hopefully we reached out to FDNY. Hopefully we're going to be able to get an EMT in on this conversation, might do a part two. So maybe they'll have a different answer for us. So that's really helpful. So AED tells us what it tells us. Operator tells us aspirin, which was really helpful. And something that frankly I should have like caught and done straight away, but you know, teamwork. And that was kind of it um the rest of it was i have to mention i mean it was like the sweetest thing and i will try not to get emotional but like your concern for your wife even in your most concerning moment was truly beautiful and then it was really letting the emts who came in first let them do their job and then the paramedics who came in who more or less were like once we have you here and we have the ambulance, there are very few things that we can't do in with the, with our skill set and with that ambulance that can't be done in an ER, and that was really really comforting. Um, I have to say, like way to go, FDNY, way to be rock stars, Web Trinidad. If you happen to be listening, you are the greatest. So now we kind of run through and, and I'll kind of relay the conversation. But I think in those moments, the, the real question is once it's been established, yes, this person is having a heart attack. Do you give them nitrous oxide? It was discussed between you and the paramedics that nitrous oxide was not the best course of action in that moment. Um, do you have any idea why you seem to have an opinion on it in the moment? Do you have any idea why that was possibly the case?
1: No. Uh- no, and I'm just just to double back with you on that do you mean
0: oxygen or nitrous oxide they said nitrous they were said oh, that they okay. didn't give you nitrous because they didn't want to send you into full arrest, yeah okay. you seemed whether you were just playing along just being an awesome doctor and just like, yes, I concur do you concur I concur, but you seemed on board with that at that moment in time once again, yeah. maybe a question for the paramedics, yeah,
1: yeah, no, and I just to uh, um And again, to circle back on a couple of things that you said, because, um, you know, first off that, uh, you know, I I would like to kind of reiterate sort of a shout out to the fire department of New York broadly. And it was, you know, the first responders were um, engine company 24 ladder five battalion two. So that's kind of the neighborhood fire department. And, you know, we lose sight of this, but you know, for a lot of people in New York, they're you know in a five-story walk-up, and it's you know that you you to get somebody into the the you know through the front door of the apartment or into the apartment itself. They're really critical um, for making that all happen to be able to get on the scene and assess what's going on. So, um, shouldn't lose sight of of the you know the great job that they do every day, and you know talk about unsung heroes, but I feel very strongly that, uh, you know, so much of what they do is not fully appreciated. And then, yeah, to the, um, the EMS station seven, which is, uh, you know, 23rd street and 10th Avenue. And, uh, it was, um, Trinidad and Webb, uh, that were the paramedics that, that came specifically, but again, everybody there who, um, you know, and we can touch on this a little bit later too about how fortunate I was in so many ways, but the fact that this was just pre-COVID, you know, they were there in a matter of minutes and, um, you know, I mean, the the demands that, the, that those services have had collectively over the time when COVID-19 was peaking in New York can't be, uh, you know, underestimated. And so, again, very professional, lots of... Um, Um, you know, skill and expertise that they have. And so, you know, want to make sure that they, you know, that they get an appropriate acknowledgement uh, as well in those early phases. And for kind of, yeah, I I think you highlighted, I think largely what you want to then be doing is, is for lack of a better phrase, but get out of the way, you know, so that the people who are professionals can do, do what they um, do, what they want to do.
0: Yeah. And that's exactly what, what they were so good. And, and we can pray, sing their praises for another hour. But I will say it was just so nice to see people be so good at their job in such a stressful moment. Yeah. And it was amazing. And so then ambulance all over to the hospital. And that was like clockwork partially, again, because they were so on it. They knew exactly what they were dealing with. So they knew what to give the ER a heads up on. And it was a total just touch and go at the ER. You guys, I think, reminisced about doctor talk residency stuff. It was cute. And then you were straight up to the cath lab and in surgery quicker than it probably takes to get French fries at Shake Shack, frankly. So from that, then kind of the 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 story goes off. I mean, I got to connect with your amazing wife, Leola. She's amazing. We could again talk about that for an hour as well. But that was really where kind of my story ends, because once you got into surgery, there was nothing that happened on my end until you came out of surgery and I saw your smiling face. I gave you a big hug and I went on my way to ride a bike and cry just a little bit, no big deal. Like that's just how it goes in these situations. And that was where my kind of like experience with what went on on January 29th ended, but that's kind of like where yours now picks up as far as reflection. And also talk us through kind of what happened from when you left the ER to go into the cath lab till we saw your smiling face in recovery.
1: Yeah, well, it, it it brings up a you know a whole another aspect of this from my perspective because um, the you know we, I sort of touched on coming into the area in the gym where you were physically located, but it, it wasn't long after that that presumably just because my heart wasn't pumping or functioning effectively enough to really perfuse my brain adequately even though I was conscious appearing, I was really very much in this in and out mm-hmm. phase in terms of what I can remember. So I remember, you know, a bunch of the, the, the fire department members in that room and kind of around me. Um, but there were big gaps in what was probably an hour and a half or so of time that I had no recollection of. And I just kind of, I had these little snippets. I remember going out the door of the gym because I was in sweaty workout clothes. And to to get into the ambulance was, you know, at 15 seconds uh, outside in the, whatever it was that night, 25 degrees or whatever it may have been. So I remember thinking it was really cold, um, but then was just kind of out again. And then I remember actually part of the ride over then really having some very intense chest pain. But then that passing, I remember you talking and thinking, oh my gosh, Steve is in the ambulance with me. And let me, let me just use this, by the way, as a chance to give a shout out (laughs) to you directly, because yeah, you you were phenomenal. And, uh, you know, in supporting um, Leola, my wife, who, uh, you know, was also um, great, uh, uh, but took a little while to, to sort of get her bearings, because obviously very disorienting, but you were fabulous talking to her, but just, uh, you know, it, it says a, t- a, a ton about who you are, the fact that you were actually in the ambulance that whole time and kind of changed your plans for the night. Um, <laughs> anyway, getting back to the, yeah, to the, the hospital itself, again, I just, I, I remember going into the emergency room, signing a consent form for, uh, you know, and frankly, not really knowing for what, and then going up to the cath lab and then that was at the point they actually wound up you know giving me medication before doing the um the, the cardiac catheterization and then pl- the actual stent placement so the procedure as it were um you know you're referring it to surgery but it was all you know again kind of mm-hmm. remarkable uh, just it was a tiny little needle stick in my wrist that this is all um, done through Yeah. And the last thing I would just kind of say in this part of things, too, was that and you highlighted that the that the paramedic team coordinated what hospital to take me to so that the cath lab was physically and the personnel waiting for me when I arrived. And so, again, we can get into how important timing is from onset of symptoms till you relieve a blockage related to um, cardiac events like this. But it. it, um, you know, we, it, it's easy to grumble about the city and what it doesn't do well and various agencies and bureaus within it. But this has really been well thought out, well coordinated. And, uh, you know, again, made, in my case, I think made a huge difference.
0: Yeah, and the, the ambulance ride, it, it was beautiful. So, and again, this is like just the moment to like share the humanity of it all. Like in the gym, it was obviously like, Just text Leola, like, just tell her I love her. And that's exactly kind of what she'd be like. Once you knew that she was taken care of, your focus switched to your kids, which was just like, so that was the ambulance conversation that you don't remember. Mm -hmm. It's just worth kind of letting you know that now. And then your daughter's a physician as well. She was really nice to have, like, phone a friend when the doctor came in. So really, like, again, I know you touched on it, that, like, circumstances really lined up pretty well for you like the in the moment like the micro circumstances like the fact that there wasn't traffic but the cath lab was open till 9 and like at 8:43 or something they got the call so they were still there i talked to them in the elevator after it was like no no problem actually we weren't off for the day yet but it was 15 minutes later or whatever the ambulance specifically like all of those things going through but then the macro for you as far as like you know you have a really supportive and helpful family and something like that that can make even this a little bit smoother. So it was just adorable. It's nice. You know, you kind of see who a person really is. I think when they're like kind of in a situation like that, you're a damn good guy, doc. And it's really nice to know you. So tell us anything else you want since that moment moving forward, and then we'll get into our five questions.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, uh, uh, again, maybe just a, a, a couple of other things to um, you know, to, you know, to highlight about the experience itself. But then it was, um, you know, uh, again, this, this period of time of, of being cared for in the, and this is, it's, uh, again, I don't think we, we should also look past the, um, you know, the team there at Mount Sinai, Beth Israel. So um, Dr. Hugo Rosero, who is my cardiologist and, you know, they, you know, did a fabulous job, but the, all of the, the nursing staff, the support staff that, that, uh, you know, made the the stay and the, the you know, very, um, you know, beneficial for me as well as the cath lab team. So we, again, it's so easy to look past the expertise and skill that all these people have. And, um, um, and just as you talked about the, you know, the presence of them being there and availability. So, you know, being used to it from the provider side, uh, you know, sometimes it's kind of inconvenient, but, you know, you, obviously you can't control when emergencies are going to happen. And so appreciate uh, all the, the the care that was provided in that regard. But um, yeah, the rest of the, the hospital stay without getting into the real long timeline, um, you know, really then, um, you know, went, uh, I think I would say pretty uneventfully overall, it was a, a matter of getting started on sort of standard medical therapy for almost anybody who's had a Uh, who's had a heart attack and um, just trying to get back on track. And in the way that, you know, talked about, um, you know, how I'd had uh, just finished almost a three hour workout the following day, I, you know, could barely get up to go to the bathroom without feeling like I was exhausted. So in the way that any of us can really be set back suddenly by um, health events, you know, that was very, you know, very humbling, to be honest with you. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I think also speaks to the fact that, uh, you know, getting more into the discipline of what you do injuries, even to people that are really fit, you have to look at from the long timeline. And that's been very much my approach since then is not to say, let me next week be back to where I was. It's, you know, very much, you've got to listen to your body, take the longer timeline and, um, and, and then, you know, kind of follow the directions of people that are around you with expertise. And so, again, I think that the, the role that you serve and having had a couple of physical injuries myself in the past, um, you know, I think that the, the rehabbing, if I can use that term, it's so critical if you've got the right person there to be guiding, leading and, uh, you know, and giving direction to what should be done.
0: Yeah, of all the times that you're going to want to slow cook something, it's right now. Just take your time and be patient with it. And it is nice. I mean, heart heart rate monitors are not expensive. And they do give very useful information because almost all of the science in the cardiopulmonary world is based off of heart rates. And you can do talk tests. You can do Berg rate of perceived exertion. Why not just go out and buy the chest strap? and just kind of use it as data. I'm not saying get obsessed with it, but we are luckily at a technological point where you don't have to be in a proper rehab facility to have that heart rate monitor. Just go out, splurge, whenever. So that's pretty nice. Now, from that day, you've been slow cooking your fitness back up. Is there anything that you learned along the process um, kind of from that day till today that's made you feel um, any differently about what could have happened that day or things you could have done differently to lead up to it? And again, and we'll get into our five questions and kind of educate some people.
1: Yeah. So, I, uh, you know, maybe just to articulate, to start with what, you know, what I have been doing. So it, you know, for the first six weeks after the heart attack, it, you know, literally was just kind of walking was the extent of, of exertion that I undertook. And, um, there was it wasn't that I was completely limited at that point, but that was um, you know the kind of the directions that I had, and combined with all I felt comfortable doing until I really circled back and had a chance then to talk to my uh, my cardiologist about well what is feasible, and the the next recommendation then starting at that six week point was to really just do and you sort of touched on it earlier, but they they kind of used. Um, you know, the ability to still carry on a conversation ought to generate the level of 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 of, of pace that you go. And so you know with circumstances being as they are um, and not really having access to a, a you know a, a gym, much as I guess there's not many people unless you have it in your basement that do these days. Um, so I really haven't been doing anything in the way of of weight training, but um, but I've been able to, Um, start running again and um, yeah to again backtrack a little bit and we'll you know kind of get into this probably with the questions but uh, you know prior to this event I had been contemplating running a marathon had been getting up to running around 30 miles a week and um, was really feeling about as fit as I had endurance wise for probably the better part of a decade anyway and you know what I'm doing now, as I've you know, I've done some runs up to probably about six miles, maybe is the longest I've done since the heart attack. And I think what's really different though is just the pace. I, you know, mm-hmm. used to think of myself as kind of a 10 ten-minute mile pace, and now it's much more to sort of keep that um, ability to to converse. Um, uh, you know, I'm probably much more at the thirteen or fourteen. Um, minute pace but you know the the um, I think the the, the upshot is uh, as much as uh, many of us kind of obsess over numbers or you know metrics you know it's so much more I think just getting out and um, you know the, the the physical benefits obviously of of exertional of exerting are are are, are evident but um, you know probably not dissimilar to a lot of people with in these times of COVID, just being outside is great, doing something. And then, you know, having some, um, you know, the sort of mental benefits, if I can say, of exercising has also been uh, a, a real um, plus as well to being able to get back to it. And so that's sort of where I am right now. And and, uh, uh, you know, have um, uh, another assessment that I'll probably be doing in about Uh, four to six weeks again, um, including another echocardiogram to kind of assess what can be done medication-wise to maybe taper a little bit of the regimen I'm on.
0: Perfect. That leads us into our first question. Are CPR and AED training valuable? The ultimate
1: softball. Yeah. Yeah, there it is, lobbed, underhanded, right over the plate, right. So, yeah. So you know, it. It. Um, I think I would say the answer is absolutely. Um, and the the you know you really can get with a uh, the the basic um, CPR training class. Uh, you know, gosh, I did one in New York probably about a year ago. And I think it was a, maybe an hour and a half total and maybe not even that long. So it, it doesn't take very long. It's not very hard. and um, But conversely, it can make a world of difference if you encounter uh, someone who is, um, you know, either had a cardiac event or, uh, you know, that, that's what the possible concern is. Uh, it really... Um, just a little bit of familiarity with it can go a long way so uh, you know we talk uh, uh, you know now in this time of covid about the sort of the societal responsibility for everybody else's well-being and this is a way you can extend that you know if you have expertise or familiarity with those it 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 can make such a difference
0: yeah and i i would and I would encourage everyone to go do in person at least the first time that you do it then there are some online ones if you don't necessarily need to feel the amount of pressure and use the dummy i mean you can do it in the amount of time that it takes you to watch two episodes of queer eye you could be done with your cpr aed training and then go straight back to the queer eye and continue to watch that for sure. So Mm -hmm. it's not too bad. And then a lot of them kind of couple with bloodborne pathogens and things like that. They're not things that like, I think people think because I'm a physical therapist that I encounter this stuff every day. I don't necessarily encounter this stuff every day. So it was, it's just as important kind of for me to do it as it is for you to do it. Um, The other two things, and this is just kind of worth mentioning, but like you were one person that kind of like, I was there in a moment where it kind of could have gone either way. Obviously it went great and all is well. The two other times, and I just feel like to take the platform and use it for a second. One is we caught a DVT on one of our patients. So he was a coder that was launching a new website and was sitting so much. The standard thing is like, were you on an airplane? Were you on an airplane? Were you on a transatlantic flight, like a long flight? whatever. It's not always the case. Sometimes it's a coder who really needs to get this website out and done and was sitting in a chair for 11 hours a day. He ended up getting a blood clot in his calf. He came in for a calf massage to make it feel better to the muscle strain and relatively immediately, shout out to Carl, him and I identified we were not dealing with a muscle strain. We got him off to the city MD, off to the ultrasound He went straight to the R. I think when he Googled what what a DVT was, then he wrote a very kind email and then subsequently bought us drinks. Uh But yeah, that was like one time where it kind of could have gone either way. And again, right now it's summer, this feels like it's worth mentioning. But the other time when I've actually been there when it could have gone either way was when I was surfing down in Costa Rica and um, someone wasn't being cautious with the rip currents. And she ended up being okay. Her husband ended up being okay, but it was one of the worst experiences that I've been through. If you see any signs for rip currents or if you don't, just ask the locals or just maybe just don't go in the water if you're not familiar with the beach because that can be really problematic. So side note on that, bring us back to our second question. Is speed of intervention a factor for survival?
1: So uh, the answer is yes. So it's, uh, you know, it it influences not only the survival, but also um, the extent of how big a heart attack or myocardial infarction using the medical term, how big it might be. And, uh, um, you know, it's all relative, but certainly the goal, and it's the same, we're kind of leaving it out, but for patients that have had a stroke or a, a TIA, a transient ischemic attack, um, it's, you know, very much analogous where, you know, the time is of the essence and really, you know, if you can get intervention a- accomplished in under an hour, that's phenomenal, which it was pretty close to that in my case. But, you know, that often means all the stars have to align almost. But two hours is really uh, kind of the, the, the um, point of inflection where after that, you know, many times the damage um, you know, that doesn't mean that things can't improve on their own or that you can't have a good outcome, but that that the longer time leads to more t- damage or the higher possibility that a, a patient or an individual might not survive. So um, that's um, you know that's kind of the time frame. and and so that there, obviously there can be a whole lot of barriers that can 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 come up to, Making that not be possible, the patient being stubborn or denying the symptoms, somebody else not recognizing that that could be the case. So I, I think there, you know, more for the non-medically indoctrinated. If there's any doubt, yeah, just do as you did and call nine one one, and somebody will be there sometime soon that that can help assess that rather than, you know scratching your head and saying i wonder if it's going to be a i to be bothering somebody calling 911 i would just say do it uh, and um, you know if it wasn't necessary uh, you know that yeah no harm done basically um, uh, in so many regards um, so
0: um, yeah that that now just for, for anyone who's listening it, and and i feel like this is just just can you give us a cliff notes version of what a heart attack is. You said myocardial infarction, obviously, um, cardiac arrest, if you want to touch on that, it's totally up to you, but like, can you just help people who maybe aren't familiar with it? And most people who aren't familiar with it are lucky. And unfortunately that luck's going to change someday. And it's, it's worth you knowing just on a very broad sense, what's going on behind the scenes. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So in in essence, uh, a, a heart attack is, um, you know, it it more almost always, I guess I would say, um, is going to be related to progressive narrowing or atherosclerosis of one of the coronary arteries. So the blood vessels that supply the heart muscle itself. And so there's probably kind of, you know, two variants of it, I might say, but the, um, you know, the the mean ones being that there's been a progressive narrowing. And so one day it's gotten to kind of a critical point where now the blood supply is inadequate. And that may be in response to some stress working out in the gym or shoveling snow or something like that, where the heart's trying to get enough oxygen to do the job that you imposed on it. And there's now it's gotten to a critical point where there's just not enough there to do that. So that's, that is a, a type. And then the, you know, the, the type that, you know, everyone sort of presumes, and again, this is based on what the, the, the what's called the angiogram or the study that was done in the cath lab to look at my um, coronary arteries um, specifically, but that you can also get just an area where there's an atherosclerotic plaque. So it's almost like a, calcification is maybe the best way I could describe it that was on one wall of the artery and it was by no means occluding or blocking any time previously and then for some reason all of a sudden you get some bleeding into the wall underneath that and it lifts that plaque up to where it then closes the artery off very acutely and since we've talked about COVID that's been kind of the concern with COVID when people have talked about these events these kind of vascular events is that it's presumably these plaques and whether that's causing strokes because of the arteries going up to the brain or in the heart itself, that's presumably more what is triggered, um, with the, this bigger inflammatory process. So.
0: Okay. Fair. All right. Thank you for, thank you for that information. That was uh, honestly, you just told me a lot of things that I did not recall from physical therapy school. I appreciate the free information. So, what should you do by start, before starting an exercise regimen?
1: Yeah, so you know, so there, I think, um, and at the, at the risk of this sounding like uh, you know a paid political announcement for the American Medical Association, but I, I think that you know again everybody's at a different point, and if you're you know 18 years of age, you probably don't have to be as worried as if you're you know somebody at my age at 66. Um, But but I think it's very much ought to be, um, you know, if you're really embarking on something that's either completely new or, you know, at a level, and I kind of talked about as an example of saying, I think I'm, you know, my New Year's resolution, I'm going to run a marathon this year, you know, before you kind of take that on, it probably makes sense to get in and and see, um, you know, your healthcare provider, whoever that may be, physician, physician's assistant nurse practitioner, but somebody who can then do a, a, a general assessment to kind of screen you for, um, you know, what sorts of risk factors you might have, what symptoms you might have that you might not recognize or appreciate that could be cardiac related and, um, and kind of work out an appropriate plan then for, um, you know, uh, uh, assessing all that. So things like family history, you know, make a big difference. And so if, you know, if you say, you know, six of my relatives died of heart attacks before they were 50, you really have to have a tighter of concern that's much higher than if no one in the family that you're aware of has ever had problems in that regard. People who are former smokers, and again, a great thing to, you know, stop smoking if for a whole variety of reasons, but, you know, in particular related to heart disease, somebody who may have smoked for, you know, 10 or 15 years when they were between 20 and 40. And then all of a sudden, at age 50 has, you know, hadn't smoked in 10 years. But, you know, damage may have been done in those years that cumulatively, then can lead to increased risk. Um, You know, then clearly symptoms if you, you know, you, you get shorter breath, if you have chest pain and, and, you know i think the other thing to underscore here is that symptoms of a heart attack can be extremely variable the adage um you know when i was a medical student was any pain from the the you know the chin to the knees could be a heart attack almost and so it can be abdominal it can be chest it can be in the shoulder towards the back going up the neck um you know all, all those are possibilities and many times people attribute it to something else. It's indigestion, you know, heard me say it's heartburn, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, when I had my event. But, you know, there are a lot of other common things that can cause pains that are confusing or potentially um, confusing in that regard. So I think it's always, um, you know, good to be thinking about that. And then, you know, maybe, you know, one of the things to be aware of, and this is both from a patient standpoint and a provider standpoint, but we have kind of this image of the standard patient, you know, who's prone to a heart attack, who's, you know, an overweight smoker, um, and but, you know, sort of thrown in there might also be um, um, males. And, you know, women also are very, you know, prone to, to heart disease, often not appreciated. And so, uh, again, I think it's just kind of a good thing for uh, people who are advising or working with um, individuals who are thinking about gearing up their training to, you know, not sort of think, well, you know, women are immune from heart disease. In fact, they're often, it's, they're not, studies have shown that their complaints or symptoms often aren't taken seriously when they are having cardiac disease. So sort of bearing that in mind from the standpoint of, of, um, you know, what needs to be considered.
0: Yeah. And if, and I I know you're not a cardiologist, but maybe you would have some input on this. How would you, coach your GP to give you the best the the best um, version of themselves when they're trying to clear you for an exercise regimen I, I I'm not putting down physicians at all but I, I think sometimes there can be very different experiences where a physician could maybe not even or maybe like listen to your carotid Pulse uh, through there to all the way through. Maybe looking at your C-reactive protein levels. I, I know that there's a lot of different things. Your cholesterol, triglycerides. Just, just give us your impression if you want. What you, what, how you might coach your GP or cardiologist to get a thorough look at how, what a pre-screen would look like for an exercise regimen.
1: Yeah. So I, I think you, you know, you've highlighted some of these things. So, you know, really, uh, you know, a basic physical exam goes a long way and it's not that you're going to, you know, necessarily pick up evidence of coronary artery disease by listening to the heart. As an example, you did talk about the carotid arteries and listening for, you know, uh, abnormal sounds there or what are called bruis that can be indicative of narrowing. But, um, but I think that, that, um, you know the you know family history is a very important one to be uh, aware of, and then you know the broad sorts of screening things. You know uh, you know the cholesterol you talked about in the HDL LDL levels specifically looking at that. Um, the, you know, there are, um, you know, I think it's probably not a bad idea at at a, a certain age, and I can't give you an exact recommendation, but getting an EKG done just so you've got a baseline because there can be occult changes that can be picked up there. And then I think that if there's any question, either as somebody has started an exercise regimen, or even if they have, you know, apprehension, and, you know, to some degree, this is, you know, is um, pertinent to my own scenario now where, you know, getting a a stress test or a stress echocardiogram done to actually look at the dynamic function of the heart as you, you know, maybe on a treadmill or maybe doing some other activity um, as a, you know, even better way to try to look for, you know, evidence of that. I would kind of flip that around and just because they're, um, you know, they've had a lot of popularity, um, I think in, I'll sort of put it in the last decade range, but, you know, being a CT scan to look at your coronary arteries, it might pick up evidence of plaque or calcification in the arteries, but it's really not terribly um, helpful by itself as a parameter. And I don't think most cardiologists in particular would say, there's value in that. And then kind of the very, you know, last stages are are other tests that, you know, can be done. But, you know, the angiography is really the gold, gold standard. So not many individuals is that going to be necessary to be doing. But, you know, if if it's kind of unclear, somebody's got some symptoms that are suggestive, um, you know, should that be done, um, you know, it, it kind of becomes the last, um, you know, there are the, the, the best but most invasive um, screening tests. So angiography or ca- cardiac catheterization, same thing, um, where you actually then can look at the arteries um, in real time and see if there's any areas where there are narrowing or, or blockages that could be problematic.
0: Cool. Thank you for the very thorough answer. I wasn't sure if that was going to be five words or 500. And I really appreciate what you gave me. Thanks. So you touched a little bit on family history, but does lifestyle play a role in heart attacks?
1: So I, I think the answer would be to say, you know, absolutely. It makes a, you know, a difference and, you know, touched on smoking already and, and, you know, in the, in the medical world that's tends to be sort of rated by, um, Uh, based on a a parameter known as pack years. So how many years you've smoked multiplied by the number of packs per day as a way to get that in aggregate. So just as an example, you know, somebody who, when they were 16, smoked three cigarettes a day with their friends, uh, you know, in the park, and then quit, you know, after that, shouldn't have to say, well, I'm a former smoker, I might have heart disease. I mean, the odds that that's going to create a significant increased risk is going to be pretty small, but um, but the you know other lifestyle things you know we just broadly think that being sedentary, uh, meaning not very active, um, you know, works against you at, at making you more at risk for for heart disease. So uh, there's probably you know in the grand scheme of things you know the that um, you know, it may not be as important, for instance, as smoking or having a, you know, a, a high cholesterol or having, um, you know, diabetes is another example as a risk factor for vascular disease, but uh, for having a heart attack in particular, those would all be, would really accelerate things more significantly. But I think that it, it goes without saying that the more active you are and the the more doing Um, you know, aerobic activities in particular, the better. And so without trying to, again, sound like more of an expert than I am, or, you know, make too much um, distinction, but, you know, somebody who lifts weights a lot, but doesn't ever do anything aerobically, like running or being on a bicycle or, or, you know, whatever it may be, jumping rope, you know, Mm -hmm. that probably isn't as beneficial as as more prolonged swimming, another great example of something where it's a, that those sort of total body workouts that really, um, trigger and condition the heart. Um, and, uh, so it, it, uh, you know, it has real benefits, I think in, in, in terms of, uh, avoidance of, of heart disease, but, you know, I mean, I, I guess I would say as a standing here sitting here as a case in point, it doesn't mean that you can't be affected, of course, but it's uh, a game of statistics is maybe the way I I would say it. So, and diet, another one, you know, steering towards, um, you know, diets that are lower in cholesterol, the so-called Mediterranean diet, uh, seemingly preventative. And, you know, once again, it's not if you you know, for two weeks had nothing but omelets when you were on the paleo diet or whatever it may have been, that, you know, it's not going to tip you over the edge, but it's much more those kind of long-term life habits, I guess I would say, that that, it can make a big difference as well. So a lot of, you know, fairly simple things that can really make a difference. And then to some degree there, you know, are many individuals who have something they can't control, and that's where you know more intensive medical interventions necessary.
0: Yeah, and we I, I'm glad you served me up kind of nice as far as exercise and, and then I'll touch kind of through. Um I think this is a really easy thing right now anyone can do it. Take your resting heart rate. If it's not below 60, you have some room for improvement in your cardiopulmonary or aerobic exercise system um when we're talking about that there's really kind of two things that you want to do um when someone comes to me the first thing that i want to do is just see where the resting heart rate is at whether they're just trying to live their life or we're talking about performance because that fueling source for high performance the thing that refuels it is the aerobic energy system. So in general, to kind of break it down, so everyone kind of understands what we're talking about. The reason why 60 is a really good number to have a low resting heart rate is it means that that heart can actually pump out a good amount of blood, meaning that what's called the stroke volume or how much each time it can push through is up. And the way that it gets up is, two different ways. The chilling and around way, which is just right now, is that it actually does stretch a little bit. You can get what's called eccentric hypertrophy of your left ventricle. That sounds super fancy and like a really, I know, big, big words. And all it means is that the last portion of the heart before it goes out into the body gets out a little bit bigger. It just stretches out a little bit. And that's really nice because it lets it push more blood out with every single beat and that's great. The other thing would be what's called concentric hypertrophy which means that it's stronger and can force that blood out a little bit faster. Now we're talking about someone who's exercising a little bit more. Having a good balance between eccentric and concentric hypertrophy of that heart makes the heart when you're not exercising have to work way less and that's really nice. I'm not saying that you don't you want to work the heart, obviously, in certain areas. We, we tend to abide by the World Health Organization that you should be doing 22 to 44 minutes every day of moderate to vigorous exercise, moderate being termed as you could talk, but you couldn't sing, and vigorous meaning you can say a few words, but you can't get out more than a cluster of them. Those are nice guidelines and I think people lose this. And if you listen to all of our webcasts, you probably are like, shut up, Steve. We've heard you say this a hundred times, but just simply walking around doesn't tick those boxes. If you can sing while you're doing it, it doesn't give you one minute of moderate exercise. So that's just something to look at. So as far as that is, then the other thing as far as lifestyle, and and I think you, you spoke well, in general, we walk people through an elimination diet process to find what their body really likes to try and get their inflammation as low as possible. Um, There is and correct me if I'm wrong, but an inflammatory component. And I know that you're okay with this kind of because you talked about the COVID inflammatory component of it. But there is an inflammatory quotient to Atherosclerosis or that narrowing of the arteries. So, finding out what your body is upset about and what it may be giving you an increased immune response to, or to something as simple as having improper balance between the bacteria in your small intestine and your body knowing that there's more bad intestine than it likes, so sending an inflammatory response there can end up affecting your body in other ways. Um, We tend to side with the USC Longevity Center that is uh, kind of a primarily vegan plus pescatarian, um, if you will, diet. Um, If you wanna check that out, feel free to look. Um, It's not too different from the blue zone diet. Some people claim that the blue zone has a little bit bias. I followed Walter Longo's work for a while. He's the USC longevity center head. I followed his work since I was actually in college because my physiology professor followed his work. I don't get a sense of bias on that guy, but again, do your homework, check it out and see whatever you think. But yeah, it is nice to like almost find out what your body really likes, get your inflammatory quotient as low as possible. And then we can start talking about diet. So that's it. And I really like that. To lead us in, you touched on this saying from like anywhere from, I feel like the, ears to the knees of what a ha- possible heart attack symptoms might look like. But just tell us if there's anything else that like people could look for. Um, I know men and women can sometimes present differently, even like women can sometimes take an antacid and that can help with symptoms that are a heart attack. But just talk us through that. Give people a bit of a robust uh answer to the question of how might I know I'm having a heart attack?
1: Yeah. And so, and and again, as, uh, you know, having started off by, you know, detailing to some degree my own symptoms and sort of lack of awareness early on, but it it, um, it really can be variable. So, um, and, uh, you know, we, the, I, I think things to, to highlight in that regard is that, you know, clearly avert chest pain kind of below the sternum or the breastbone is going to be you know one of the most classic but pressure and just sort of a heavy feeling so it may not be avert pain but this description of what uh, feels like something sitting on my chest uh, mm-hmm. a, another I- example of that then you know sort of shortness of breath or feeling lightheaded as you know evidence of not the latter one not perfusing the the brain the former being the heart just not pumping out you know adequate um, adequate blood to kind of keep things from, from backing up into the lungs. So there's, it, it's really a, a variety of things and it can be more abdominally based. Um, it, you know, it can even be, you know, relatively silent, meaning that there's not much pain at all. And so it's, it, um, yeah, you know, is there a, you know, a, a, a sort of a, a classic pattern? And the answer is, you know, when you see patients in an emergency room, you, uh, you know, to, you know, do what's called a rule out MI or to exclude somebody from having had a a heart attack, you know, there's this whole spectrum of symptoms that may uh, allow you to be included in that. Um, So, and, you know, and, and the more risk factors that somebody has, the more attentive you ought to be. So, you know, that everything from age things we talked about, presence of diabetes, smoking history, high cholesterol, family history, they're all kind of an additive um, to be thinking about that should make you more suspicious. So it's, you know, talking about that, you know, the emergency room setting, it's a pretty wide group of patients that will get included in that rule out MI category. Um, And this is the, you know, sort of the lesson you learn is, probably far better to check the, you know, the blood test to look for it if you're, if it's kind of crossed your mind to do an EKG than it is to, you know, ignore it or look past it. Um, Just two other things I was going to comment on real quickly. One of them was when you talked about inflammation and I, you know, I must say, um, you know, one of the things that a lot of people look past is oral health. So getting in to see a dentist, you know, we tend to say, well, fitness is all about my body um, but you know, good dental care, which again, a lot of us struggle to find a good dentist where we are. But you know, is the the mouth can be very much a you know a a, a source of that. Um, so making sure that that's not something that um, you know that we um, you know that we we look past in that um, bigger scheme. And now I've forgotten what the second one was, so that's my cue to turn it back to you. I think. Steve. Okay, and I'll
0: give a shout out to my cousin. Uh, Dr. Christopher Perry in San Antonio, a phenomenal dentist. And my uncle, a phenomenal dentist down in the Red Bank area, Dr. Joseph Perry. So San Antonio, Christopher Perry, Red Bank, Joseph Perry, look no further than them for your dental needs. Uh, Let's take it back. So give me a little like just tell us, and we're going to go into the Q&A in, in, in a moment, but is there any sort of kind of conclusion that you want everyone to kind of draw up? Uh, just, you've done, you've very cleared a ton of different uh, questions, I would say, that a lot of people would have in their mind. But is there anything that you thought of while I was talking that you want to just kind of touch on again, or you think we can go straight into the q and
1: I, yeah, I was just going to say, I'm not sure that there's... Um there's a whole lot that, that it comes to mind. To be honest with you, that we, I mean, I think we've really done a a, a pretty thorough job of um, you know dissecting through all of this. To be honest with you, so um, so yeah, I nothing that comes to mind, but I you know won't hesitate to interject as we're yeah getting into some questions
0: that uh, something else that uh, that may be lingering from the from previously. Beautiful, it's your world. Anyone who's on the webcast right now, ask us any questions. I'm going to just continue to talk a little bit about um, kind of our shout-outs again. Hopefully, we're going to be able to get uh, an EMT. Some of the paramedics here I uh, cannot say enough nice things about them. And again, like you said, almost at, at, at the hospital, they made it look so easy that I almost forget them in all of this. They, they couldn't have been better, and it was so... Nice. Um, That also, shout out, way to go Gotham Jim, to have the appropriate stuff on hand. And that is going to take you, I'm gonna give you the one question that came through. It's not a question actually, it's a statement. It is from Big Mike Castle. He loves you and he misses you. Your wife is lovely. She perhaps said the nicest things that have ever been said. And Shelly, thanks for your input as well. So with that, we will say thanks. Doc, um, I know you're still affiliated with Doctors Without Borders. Is there any way, place that people can find you or is there any place that you want to make people aware of that they can donate or anything like that? Just give us that last little thing and then we're going to get out of here.
1: Okay. Well, um, you know, yes, I would just say having, you know, spent a uh, you know, considerable amount of time over the last decade working with Doctors Without Borders and, um, you know, I just have a world of admiration for what the organization accomplishes and the, um, you know, the, the people within it and how, you know, in, in so many ways, it's an empowering organization for, um, you know, for people who are, um, you know, very capable of, of, uh, you know, getting on their feet, but their circumstances may not a- allow it based on where they are or, you know, other challenges they face, conflict, uh, natural disasters and so forth. So, um, yeah, a great group, uh, you know, another group that I'm still involved with uh, something called uh, um, the DNDI, uh, which is Drugs for Neglected Diseases Initiative. And, and once again, tying in very much with this time of COVID, but advocating for, um, you know, fair pricing of, of, of pharmaceuticals, which is something that, uh, you know, so many of us run into uh, but also a whole spectrum of diseases that don't get enough attention. So either of those are are great. Um, I could, you know, put on, I guess just post my email on the, the chat space rather than trying to, but it's, it's pretty easy. I guess, as I'm saying that, I realize it's, yeah, my first name and last name, 159 at com. So all small letters be happy to kind of field questions or comments as, as far as that goes. So and again, I just to you know kind of start uh, uh, you know or maybe wrap up where we finished. It, you know, uh, again, I'm just very appreciative of what you did personally in all of this. So that uh, people out there listening probably already appreciate what a great guy guy you are. But uh, um, you know, the, this particular event, it's at the times of crisis that true character comes through. So thanks once again for all that you did and same thing to you know to the people in the fire department of New York, healthcare system at Mount Sinai who um uh, we you know were just uh, so invaluable in allowing me to um you know to have the the outcome that I did. So thanks so much.
0: Yeah you are welcome so much doc. Um it was pretty easy. I, I feel like I genuinely try and go the extra mile for everyone that I come in contact with but as me and Leola were talking, it's like, there's certain people that you just like, not on my watch. And <laughs> you er- you earned every bit of the emotion that's behind that. Um, that's all that we have for today. I want to thank everyone. Um, Doctors Without Borders, way to go. Don't forget about medicalmissionecuador.org That's our foundation. Um, thanks everyone for coming by. And I hope everyone has a beautiful rest of their day and a happy and healthy rest of your days. We'll talk to you later. Thanks, Doc, for being on. See ya. Yeah. All right. Thank you.